Pints with Jack, Season 4, Episode 39. After Hours with Father Dwight Longenacker. Welcome everyone. Pints with Jack is your weekly C.S. Lewis podcast, where Matt, Andrew and I break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. This season, we're eavesdropping on the correspondence of a senior demon, Screwtape, as he explains how to tempt the patient, a human assigned to be tempted by Screwtape's nephew, Wormwood. Each week, we'll be considering a different letter, untwisting Screwtape's hellish logic, and forming a battle plan for our own spiritual lives. However, today is a Thursday, and is therefore an after-hours episode. And today we're joined by a man that you'll have heard on one of the Walter Hooper tribute episodes, Father Dwight Longenecker. Father Dwight was brought up in an evangelical home in Pennsylvania. After graduating from the Bob Jones University with a degree in speech and English, he went to study theology at Oxford University. He was eventually ordained as an Anglican priest and served as a curate, a school chaplain in Cambridge and a country parson on the Isle of Wight, which is an island just off the south coast of England. In 1995, he and his family were received into the Catholic Church, and they continued to live in England for 10 years where he worked as a freelance writer and charity worker. In 2006, the door opened to return to the USA and be ordained as a Catholic priest. He now serves as pastor of Our Lady of the Rosary Church in Greenville, South Carolina, and he is the author of many books, including, most recently, the fantastically titled Immortal Combat, Confronting the Heart of Darkness. But today we're going to be focusing on two other works of his, The Gargoyle Code and Slubgrib Instructs. Father Dwight Longenecker, welcome to Pints with Jack. Thank you. Well, each episode we share a quote, a drink, and a toast. And the quote of the week naturally comes from the Screwtape Letters, and specifically the 1961 preface, where Lewis explains why he wrote the book. He says, For, of course, my book's purpose was not to speculate about diabolical life, but to throw light from a new angle on the life of men. We're going to be talking more about your books in a moment, but would you say that you had a similar kind of reasoning with regard to Slubgrib Instructs and the Gargoyle Code? Yeah, of course. Um, I think if you're talking about uh, the diabolical side of things, you would be writing about exorcisms and the experiences of exorcists and, and uh, uh, real experiences of, of encounters with the diabolical. This is fiction and it's fant- fanciful, as as Lewis said, in order to shed light on us and our psychology, not really to de- delve into the dark corridors of the occult and, and, and uh, dealings with the devil. Wonderful. Okay, well, the next thing is the drink of the week. And since it's a comparatively cold morning here in San Diego, I just made myself a pot of PG tips. Uh, Father, are you drinking anything? I do not have anything here, but um, it's a little bit uh, too early for me to start with with our uh, English tea here. You probably know that I'm married to an English woman, so we do observe a 4 o'clock, 4.30 tea time. (laughs) That's wonderful. Although, personally, I don't think there's any hour when it's not applicable. Uh, And actually, since we don't have any Gold Level supporters today, I'm just going to cheers you. Cheers. Cheers. So you shared a little bit about your story in the tributes that we put together for Walter Hooper. But for those who haven't Mm -hmm. heard that episode, would you mind sharing a little bit about your backstory, your journey of faith and the part that Lewis had to play in it? Yeah, I I was brought up in an evangelical fundamentalist home and went to Bob Jones University, which is a pretty extreme, in the 1970s when I was there, was a very extreme fundamentalist sort of place. And um, I encountered there a form of Christianity, which was uh, struggling with two different uh, opposing factions. One was a kind of inbuilt anti-intellectualism. Uh, some of the preachers and teachers 
took pride in kind of being rednecks. I have to put it, you, you have to use that terminology. So some of them would even cultivate a kind of Southern hick accent when they were preaching, which they didn't have when they were just talking or in a conversation. So that was difficult because I was uh, reading a lot and uh, studying a lot and enjoying enjoying college, university, and learning. At the same time at Bob Jones, there was an intellectual strand, of course, at any university of people who didn't have any time for the anti-intellectuals. And so those of us who were more interested in learning and and developing the intellect and learning about culture, C.S. Lewis was a a lifesaver because here he was as one of the brightest men ever uh, to to, to really go through Oxford and and, uh, such a a brilliant intellect. And he was writing um, and defending a form of Christianity which was historic, which was rooted in the supernatural and in the scriptures, and something which we could accept, but he was also had these great intellectual credentials. So C.S. Lewis, I think, saved the faith for an awful lot of us, because I know a lot of other young people are brought up in that sort of religion, and it really turns them towards atheism, because they're they're saying, no, I don't actually want to be uh, an anti-intellectual sort of biblical fundamentalist literalist taking positions which are obviously untenable, but the only alternative seems to be to be an atheist. So they they leave the faith completely. And C.S. Lewis was a um, a real intellectual uh, lifesaver in that way. I think in the faith saver, put it in that put it in those terms, that he was able to open up the door to be able to accept the wider culture, the wider. Um, learning of literature and culture and art and music and Western culture in a way which uh, not only made it safe for an aspiring uh, young evangelical fundamentalist, but also was able to uh, ease the door open to to be able to take a view of one's faith and one's understanding, which was uh, intelligent and uh, intelligible and um, acceptable uh, in many ways. That's the short version. <laughs> Mm. And where through his writings did you discover the Screwtape Letters? And how did it strike you when you first read it? You know, I don't remember when I first read Screwtape Letters. Um, it might even have been when I was a college student at Bob Jones. I was doing a lot of reading of Lewis even then. I read it again when I was a student at Oxford. I can remember that. Uh, and I've read it regularly in, in regular intervals since then. Uh, and it sparked my um desire to write a couple of um, knockoffs, screw tape letter knockoff books as well. <laughs> well, that was my, really my, my next question. Were you nervous at all about trying to mimic a book so well loved as the screw tape letters? Well, I'd already taken Lewis as a mentor. When I was, began writing uh, books on apologetics and the Christian faith, his advice on uh, apologetics, his advice on writing about the faith, uh, I really took to heart. He's a master of um, communicating complicated ideas, theological and philosophical ideas to uh, ordinary people, making them very accessible uh, by his use of metaphors, use of uh, uh, simple language and so forth. And he does so in a, in a brilliant way. And I've, I've always taken his advice um, really uh, to heart. And so I, I wasn't so much, I think, copying him as learning from him and realizing that the way he writes apologetics and the way he writes about the faith, he and G.K. Chesterton uh, are both great examples of of the way to write to a popular audience uh, with complicated ideas. So um, I'd already written a book called More Christianity, which was kind of springboarding from his mere Christianity about the Catholic faith. Um, In one of his essays about apologetics and preaching, he says things like, common sense things like, look, don't 
Use long words. If you can use short words, you don't have to show off and, and how big your vocabulary is, because if you use long uh, words, the ordinary people you're talking to will think you're a snob, and you probably are. Uh, and he says, don't use, um, you know, arcane literary references. You know, you needn't refer to Jean-Paul Sartre, who says, and then give a French quotation. Uh, that only puts people off. It doesn't communicate anything at all. Um, and if your quotation is uh, learned, the people who in your audience who are learned will pick it up. So if you quote, if you throw into your into your um, writing something like a handful of dust, everybody will understand that. And the people who've read The Wasteland and and know it's T.S. Eliot will say, oh, it's T.S. Eliot. And you'll actually have the advantage of making them feel clever <laughs> because they've noticed the quote <laughs> while not alienating the other ones who didn't notice that it was T.S. Eliot. So um, then in one of his other uh, writings, he says to theological students, he says, after you've written your homily, he says, translate it for your cleaning lady. Uh, and he does this without being condescending or patronizing, really having a heart to communicate with ordinary folks. So um, I, I don't apologize for that. And I, I, I've tried to take him as a mentor in that way. And I think that's one of the reasons I, I tried to write a couple of screw tape letters type books. Well, let's talk about the first one then, which I believe is The Gargoyle Code. How would you describe it? What is this book about? And what are some of the ideas you explore? Well, I, was, I wasn't the first one, of course, to, to borrow the, the, screw, the brilliant screw tape idea of a correspondence between a senior devil to a junior devil. Peter Kraft has written one called, I think, The Snake Bite Letters, and, and there are various other knockoffs. In other words, in, in fact, I think Peter Kraft or somebody has said that it's become a kind of cottage industry or a subgenre or a sub-subgenre <laughs> or something like that of screw tape letter um, knockoffs. So... I'm not alone in that, and but my idea was to write it for a Catholic audience and to update it so they're exchanging emails, not letters, and to follow the same sort of idea of a senior uh, devil writing to a junior devil and instructing him, which is has a lot of mileage in it. Uh, but then I also uh, framed it as a Lent book. So I have one letter for every day in Lent, beginning with Shrove Tuesday going through to Easter Monday. Uh, and therefore, it doubles as a good Lent book, so people can read Gargoyle Code uh, and just dip into one letter per per day. And then, of course, like Lewis did, I I, I wove a little plot line into it um, so that you can follow the temptation and and the and successes and failures. And I, I complicated it also a little bit because Screw Tape has his own patient that he's tempting, and and I threw in some extra devils in there as well, and and elaborate the whole thing a little bit more. Well, Lewis wrote in his second preface to the Screwtape Letters that folks were very interested in how he came up with the names of his demons. How did you do it? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, yeah, my demons are called Dog Ward and, and Slub Grip and various others. And, and uh, you know, I think, and sometimes I just use names like Slick and things like that. So you basically you you think up grubby words and combine them together and 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 make them stinky and smelly if you can. And um, like screw tape is brilliant because it you you think of a tapeworm you know uh, and a screw like this. Yeah, I mean it's just screw is an ugly word, isn't it? it has it has kind of sexual connotations, but it's also you a screwdriver is a dr a drink you know, and a, a screw is uh, some great big thing, not just a, 
little screw, but a great big screw on a, on a ship, you know, the big mechanical thing. So there's the connotations of, of, of hell being this factory, you know, with the uh, big machine, heavy clanking machinery, uh, as well as the tapeworm. So screw tape, just, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. You can find a couple of my own attempts at trying to mimic the screw tape letters. I named my demon Bogwash. For those of you who didn't go to a British school, uh, a bogwash was a particular kind of punishment that the older boys would inflict upon the younger ones when they would take their head, stick it in the toilet, and then flush. Oh, yeah, we had it here. It was called a swishy. <laughs> yeah, a demon swishy. That doesn't have quite the same ring to it, though. <laughs> no, bogwash. But, but England has a, a great wealth of these kind of juicy words. You know, think of a, a place where one of their historic prisons is actually called Wormwood Scrubs. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's just brilliant. What, and it, Wormwood Scrubs prison apparently is a, a terrible place. My friend Joseph Pierce actually went there for a while as an inmate, and he says it lives up to its name. What were some particular ideas that you wanted to explore in that book, say, particularly from a Catholic context? So... When I've wanted to write my screw tape letters, I felt that Lewis's chapter where the patient goes to church was wonderful, but way too short. Because right. I don't know about everybody else, but the points at which I feel <laughs> demonic thoughts is usually when I'm in church. That's usually when I'm my least charitable. That's usually when I'm at my most judgy. And I kind of wanted to explore those ideas. What were some of the ideas that you look at in Slubgrib and Strux? In um, the first one is Gargoyle Code. Oh, sorry, which is wrong. <laughs> Gargoyle Code does actually deal with a fair bit of church going, and uh, one of the things I wanted to deal with was the two extremes of of uh, a modern Catholic church. One is uh, what we might call trendy; the other called traddy. And so my demon um, slub grip, his patient is a stuffy middle aged traditionalist. And he's getting, he's tempting his patient to fall into the trap of self-righteousness, uh, legalism, uh, looking down his nose at those other Catholics who have guitars and praise bands in their churches and taking pride in um, how how much lace Father has in his cotta, you know, and um, did he actually hold his fingers the right way when he said the Latin Mass? So uh, I'm I'm poking at that one a little bit, but I'm also poking at Dog world is the younger demon, and his patient is a young man in his twenties who's um, has some uh, problems with his love life and 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 uh, and lust. But he also is the, the tempter tempts him to go to um, a liberal Catholic church where everything is wishy washy, where there's a, a, a small schmaltzy praise band, and when Father Fabulous stands up and gives a peace and justice homily, uh, you know. And Slubgrip says to Dogwort, if you can keep him in that church. If he's going to go to church, keep him in that church because it'll do no harm whatsoever. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I'm playing with the churchy thing in that way a little bit. And as Screwtape says, any extreme is to be encouraged as long as it's not extreme devotion to the enemy. Yeah, and and I have some bits in the book I think which are actually quite moving because I I think so when I I put them in there because the young the young Catholic eventually falls in with a more traditionalist young priest and falls in love with a girl who who goes to that to, to a traditional mass, whereas the older Catholic uh, slub grips patient is tempted to go to a charismatic healing service because he he contracts cancer and he starts worrying about his 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 life and he he goes to this healing service and 
to um, Slubgrip's consternation, um, he's actually healed uh, of his cancer and <laughs> starts opening his mind to the charis charismatic side of, of Catholicism uh, with its signs and wonders, uh, and even um, finds himself singing a praise chorus. So, um, <laughs> you know, it, it, both it's trying to show the good the good side to the traditionalism and, and the good side to the more open worship, and uh, and while revealing its bad sides as well. I love it. <laughs> and then you wrote a sequel, Slub Grib Instructs. Was that more of the same? Was there another uh, main focus that you wanted to address in this one? Yeah, um, well, I had been leading parish missions for some time uh, on looking at the different isms in modern society, um, materialism, um, progressivism, uh, utopianism, sentimentalism, all these different isms which are in our society. And so in my sequel, I have Slubgrip being demoted to teach Popular Culture 101 in Balbage's University in Hell. <laughs> so now instead of letters, he's giving lectures to his students who are a great rumble of underclassmen in, and, and misbehaving in his class. And he's it, 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 there's a bit of fun. He has someone to keep control by zapping them with a pitchfork and so forth. And um, he, he's giving lectures to them on how to cultivate these different isms in, in society. And I wrote this because people said, do you have a book about these different isms? So I thought I'm going to write it as Slub Grip Instructs and have them as lectures in hell. And there's a little subplot running through there as well, where he's plotting to uh, overtake the presidentship of hell and um, uh, he gets demoted. And, and by getting demoted in, in my books, I think it's there in Screwtape Letters as well. Uh, he gets a dinner invitation. Is he the dinner? And, um, he's, the, he's the dinner, <laughs> yes. yes indeed. Although and, in, in that world, surely a promotion is a bad thing because you're going back up. Surely he should be always seeking a demotion. Well, because they're immortal, um, after they're consumed at dinner, they get flushed down into the sewers of hell and they have to start again from um, being a bacteria and working their way up to full-scale dragon. <laughs> And, and so um, they work up through various levels of, of, of worm and slug and nematode and, and flat, flat worm until they finally get to be a toad. And then they can work up to being various amphibians before they become full-scale full reptiles again. <laughs> now, Lewis said that although writing Screwtape was very straightforward, he said he really didn't enjoy it and it gave him a spiritual cramp. Now, maybe I'm just less spiritual than he is, but I loved writing it. What was your experience of actually the authorship process and trying to put yourself into that point of view? You know, I don't really believe him when he said that. I think he had fun too. Mm. <laughs> um, no, I, I had fun writing it as well. Uh, and um, yeah, sometimes it, it took us into a, into a dark place when you were thinking through the next stages of things. But Maybe the actor in me or the, or the dramatist in me enjoyed it too much, writing up these different characters in the dialogues, especially with Slub Grip Instruct, because um, to give a little bit of uh, relief from Slub Grip's lectures on the weekends, again, it's structured as a Lent course, so a, a Lent book. So you read one day every through every day through Lent. So in the week, on the weekends, on Saturdays and Sundays, I had guest lecturers come in, and that was really much more enjoyable because each one of the lecturers was adopting a persona, which personified the, the different sort of ism that I was talking about on that day. It was fun. And I do love the fact that it's a humorous book because 
when I typically think of Lenten books, they're all things like The Imitation of Christ, which is basically week after week of reminding me that I'm a terrible sinner, and then at the end, reminding me that Jesus saves. And on the subject of Lent, we've mentioned that a few times now. Since not all of our listeners are going to be coming from denominations where Lent is particularly prominent in their church life, how would you invite them into Lent? Uh, How do you think their spiritual life might be nourished in observing Lent and we might say by reading one of your books. Well, yeah, I, I would just give a little push for the books. They're available on my website, DwightLongenecker.com, but they're also available. Uh, I've done an audio book version of both of them. So um, you can listen to it day by day. And I, I enjoyed recording those and taking the parts and everything. So um, the audio books are available uh, on my website as well, if they're interested in listening. But uh, for Lent, I, I think um, on the one hand, we take Lent too seriously. And on the other hand, we don't take it seriously enough. Uh, And so, first of all, St. Benedict, who is one of my um, patrons, says that everybody should have a good book during Lent. That's actually in his rule. He says all the monks should be given a book during Lent. And I would, this is where I think we sometimes get too serious, where we, we feel that every Lent we have to read a book like The Imitation of Christ, which is terribly, terribly pious. Fantastic, um, though. Um, before anybody writes in and says, you're criticizing Thomas Kempis. No, wonderful book. I'm just saying I was yeah, utterly exhausted at the end of it. <laughs> Yeah, it is. It is wonderful, but uh, um, small. Yeah, as you as you said, small doses will do. Um, but I think one can get, especially if you get as you get older, one can get those kind of books can be a bit tiresome in Lent, and we can sometimes read them just out of duty, and it's not really sinking in anymore. It's it's, it's like hearing the same sermon over and over again. So uh, therefore, sometimes for a Lent book, I would challenge people to branch off uh, and read something which is a bit unexpected, but still a challenge. You know, read Dostoevsky, read the Brothers Karamazov for Lent, you know, read read uh, Crime and Punishment for Lent, you know, read uh, Brideshead Revisited for Lent, read the, the collection of Flannery O'Connor stories for Lent, you know, read, read one of these great Catholic writers, th- really chew it over and think it through and, and get more out of it, I think, by having to read a book in which the spiritual lessons are not so upfront and in your face, but something which you have to dig a bit more for, you know, read, read, read the Lord of the Rings trilogy for Lent. Uh, do, do something like that, which is deeply spiritual and, and has deep lessons for life, but you'll have to dig a bit for it. You know, that's wonderful. I love the suggestion to read Lord of the Rings. <laughs> yeah. And also watch the movies, maybe on Sundays. Oh, that's perfect. Yes. Read the book during the weeks and catch up on the naturally extended editions at the weekend. Yeah. <laughs> if you read Lord of the Rings again, don't. the last time I read, read it, I, I said, I am not going to skip over the long descriptions about nature and the long poems and songs that he puts in. I'm going to read the whole thing because I used to skip over those bits or just skim them to sort of get to the next plot line, yeah. uh, plot point. But in fact... If you take time to read those descriptions of the countryside and and so forth, you you participate in the journey much more. You you take a longer time to go through the whole thing because it took a long time for them to go through the whole thing, and um, it's much more sacramental or some uh, experience during reading it that way. So yeah, take time and and give Tolkien his his due credit. He he didn't go through and try to write you know a slim paperback. No. And Lewis spoke about the Kappa element, the atmosphere of a book. And that is what Lord of the Rings is. Lots and lots and lots of atmosphere. It is. And 
Uh, you're an Englishman, and as as I've lived in England, um, you, I, I guess we can visualize these landscapes and these countries, these this countryside and these landscapes of Tolkien perhaps better than others can, because we've walked it. We've uh, I don't know about you, but I used to like the long distance footpaths in England, and I've been out to the Welsh borders, and I've been in the. Uh, there's a particular walk out there where. I forget the name of the, the village, but anyway, it's it's a walk that Lewis and Tolkien actually did. And on the top of this hill is a um, a Neolithic cairn, uh, which it looks like a broken table. It's just like Aslan's table where that broke after he was he was. And you look at it and say, this is Aslan's table. It's exciting, and and you can visualize the the little dales and the and and the, and the hillsides and the and the sweeping skies and so forth uh, as you read Tolkien um, because you've you've been to England and you've seen that countryside. Well, that'll be the next thing after this Lent. People can go to England and actually walk it. <laughs> yeah. Father Longnecker, thank you so much for coming on the show. And I would love to have you back on another time to talk about some of your other books, like More Christianity, which you mentioned. I read that a while ago. Really enjoyed it. Uh, and I haven't started reading it yet, but I've got a copy of The Vicar of Great Snoring, which I'm very much looking forward to. <laughs> uh, as well as the, your... the Vicar of... Um... Great Snoring. Oh, of Great Snoring. Yeah, that... <laughs> I'd forgotten I'd written that. <laughs> yeah, I hope you hope I hope you enjoy it. Obviously, uh, I'm uh, I'm a sucker for doing a, a pastiche of different writers. And um, when I wrote that, I've I've, I've been reading a little bit too, too much of um, uh, what's he James called James Jeeves and no G- Jeeves and Wooster. Ah, uh, yes. What's it? What's the author called? Uh, oh, Woodhouse, of course. G. G. Woodhouse. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I also wanted to talk to you at some point about your book, T.S. Eliot and the Inklings, because although he wasn't an inkling, we do like going out and looking at the people that influenced them like Chesterton. And uh, right. uh, the only thing I ever really knew about Eliot was anything that I've learned from reading Lewis. Right. Well, we can talk about T.S. Eliot for a long time if you want to, and, and um, that we can springboard from uh, Pints with Jack and, and uh, talk about Eliot too. Wonderful. And in the meantime, where can people go if you could tell us where they can go to find out more about you and pick up your books? Yeah, just to my website, uh, DwightLongenecker.com, and my books are there, and uh, my, I blog regularly on these kind of topics and on faith and so forth. So come on over and join us. Wonderful. Thanks again. And we'd like to thank our top-tier supporters, Jake, Stephen, Matt, Jeff, Chris, John, James, Kate, and Rowdy. Please follow us on social media and share the graphics we've produced of authentic Lewis quotations, because we need to drown out all the misattributed ones. And as mentioned earlier, Lent is nearly upon us. So if you're giving up alcohol for Lent, just imagine how much better it will taste at Easter when drinking out of a laser-etched Pints with Jack Glencairn glass. And you can find those at pintswithjack.com shop. And please join us again next time, when we're going to be going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>